Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Dr. Brad Rodeo, professor of medicine and tobacco control expert from the University of Louisville, made a career battling forces responsible for promulgating suspect science in the field of tobacco harm reduction, and there's been no shortage of need for his effort. Regulators, public health agencies, and colleagues in academia relentlessly use skewed science and cooked statistics in an effort to delegitimize safer alternatives to smoking. For 20 years, Dr. Rodu has been an often lone voice in the effort to call the public's attention to suspect science. And he joins us again today here on RegWatch. Thanks for coming back on the show, Dr. Rodu. And uh, let me just make sure that I've got your audio. Can you uh, just say one, two, three for me, please? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Fantastic. I'm sure audio checks are mandatory on RegWatch. I just wanted to, uh, for everybody, actually, Dr. Rodeo, when I was asking around people and letting them know that we were having you on the show, there was so many people that said, make sure you thank him. Everybody, because you're a pretty modest guy sometimes, and, uh, and not often to pat yourself on the back. And so my job right now is to give you a big, huge pat on the back for all the vapors out there, the researchers out there that you work with, your colleagues, and I bet you there's probably a few curmudgeons out there that are happy that uh, you did what you did. And what that was, was lead an intensive eight-month effort uh, to hold a certain piece of science uh, that particularly was uh, bad for vaping, uh, which was done by Professor Glantz and his colleagues, and basically said that smoking or vaping causes heart attacks. Tell us about the study uh, briefly, and then we'll go into a little bit more about Dr. Glantz. Well, the study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association in June of last year. And um, it claimed that vaping had a double risk for heart attacks. And uh, we have access to the same data. And so we investigated it and uh, found some very frightening results. And what were those? Well, we found that uh, the claim was based on 38 vapors who had had a heart attack. What we found was that of that 38, the majority had had the heart attack years before they picked up an e-cigarette. Of course, this is false uh, results, and we decided to write the editors and uh, try to correct this uh, false study. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, the overall thing, I mean, to put the, the point on exactly what happened here is that uh, people in the study that apparently were having heart attacks that were being connected to vaping, uh, they were smokers long before they were ever vapors, and that was never taken into account. Pretty simple, right? Right. Uh, almost all of the vapors had some history of smoking, either current smoking or former smoking. As one Twitter uh, commenter put it, uh, vaping must be so dangerous that it can cause a heart attack years before you pick up an e-cigarette. <laughs> That's a bit cheeky. I can definitely say that. Um, so I've got for us, um, I wanted to make sure that as we get into a discussion about, about Professor Glantz, uh, to make sure that we don't try to get too personal. It's hard. A lot of issues for vapors around this. And you know, if you just are somebody that cares about science and cares about um, truth and knows how to read science, you, you might get pick it up yourself 
you might not necessarily need to be somebody that is 100% interested in the vaping issue to realize that, you know, some of the science plainly seems to be a bit hollow, to put it best. Dr. Glantz has been on RegWatch, um, and we've got some clips of him. We also did a piece on some troubles that he had a couple of years ago with regards to some sexual harassment charges that were made by some of his colleagues that worked under him. And so instead of us trying to explain too much from us about, you know, who he is and what he does, I've got a little clip package that we're going to go to. So let's see if I can get this to play okay. And for some reason, no. All working before. It's a hashtag MeToo moment, which should be rocking the highest echelons of public health and tobacco control, but instead, silence. The allegations are troubling sexual harassment, racial discrimination, and academic misconduct leveled against 71 year old Dr. Stanton Glantz, the most well known tobacco control researcher in the world. The hashtag MeToo movement continues to rage as new allegations of sexual misconduct surface daily. Prominent men have been publicly denounced and fired from their jobs, yet Dr. Stanton Glantz remains at his. Glantz is employed by the University of California, San Francisco, where he's a professor and director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education. Glantz first rose to prominence with his controversial research on the effects of secondhand smoke on the heart and gained notoriety for his role in the battle against big tobacco in the 1990s. Today, he is principal investigator overseeing a team of academic researchers on a $20 million FDA-funded program developing science-based approaches to tobacco regulation. In recent years, Glantz has emerged as a fanatical opponent of e-cigarettes. A barrage of research papers and UCSF press releases reveal his trademark smugness as he attacks every finding that supports vaping as a safer alternative to smoking and dismisses any evidence that vaping is an effective tool for smoking cessation. Glantz proselytizes the gateway theory that states youth vaping leads to youth smoking. He admonishes dual use, demonstrating ingenuous understanding of the smoker's journey to quit. And he derides research colleagues and organizations such as Public Health England for promoting vaping as a tool for harm reduction. What's your bottom line on e-cigarettes? You asked me the question, do I think the world would be a better place if we didn't have any e-cigarettes? Yes, I do. I think e-cigarettes are making the cigarette epidemic worse. But you know the one great thing about what's going on in England? And I mean, I think those people, are, again, they're friends of mine. I've worked with some of them for years. I think they're absolutely nuts right now. Well, and there you go. Absolutely nuts. Would you agree with uh, that assessment of... Uh Public Health England there, Dr. Rodu. No, I wouldn't. Uh, Public Health England and the Royal College of Physicians have, have incredible reputations, and I would trust what they say. So what is it um, about the particular position uh, that Professor Glantz has? Because when you go back through the history, I mean, he really is um, a, a top leader uh, in this whole effort, uh, starting, of course, first with smoking, um, and he, you know, got his start really at the end of the 70s in the early 1980s. And he started what is the Americans uh, for Smoke Free World or basically Americans for telling other people what to do. 
And it just started from there. And he seems to be the kind of the lead researcher out of that whole cohort of scientists worldwide that's been driving um, this kind of research. Well, I don't want to judge uh, anyone personally. What I, what I do is judge their research. And this particular research published in the Journal of the American Heart Association was not just flawed, it was false. And uh, we were uh, intent on exposing that and getting a retraction from the journal. And so how did you go about doing that? Well, the first thing we did was double check the analysis. We did the analysis first in the public use data set, which is available to anyone in the world. And in fact, I published uh, an analysis strategy on my blog that anyone can take on. Secondly, we went to more restricted data and we conducted detailed analyses. And then we reported the results of our work to the journals of the American Heart, excuse me, to the editors of the journal. I wrote letters to them on July 11th and July 18th last year. Unfortunately, they never answered. And um, so uh, it was October before I got any sort of response from the editors. And this has been routine that we don't get responses to legitimate professional questions. And uh, a, a journalist, uh, Jane O'Donnell out of USA Today, had an interest in this. And uh, she published a story back in mid-July. Yeah, and it was a very good story too as well. Um, how did that come about? Did you, did you, ha you and your people go and try to make that happen or? Well, I had been in contact with uh, Jane uh, on previous stories. And so I thought perhaps she might um, want to uh, be, that she might have an interest in this story. Keep in mind that the journal doesn't have any letters to the editor section, and it doesn't have any way to comment on studies online or in any other fashion. So while we wrote letters to the jour journal editors, we uh, decided that the others might as be interested as well. We thought this was an important problem about a claim that was causing a lot of distress and grief among vapors throughout the world, that vaping could cause heart attacks. We felt this study needed retracted immediately. And um, it definitely um, had a lot of impact uh, when, it came, when it comes to um, people out there. I mean, obviously forces that are against vaping, you know, they're waiving that uh, report, you know, council meetings and, you know, in Congress everywhere. I mean, that heart, you know, to say so definitively that it causes heart attacks, um, you know, that a lot of people were using that. They were weaponizing it, best way to Absolutely. put it. Absolutely, yes. So well, let's talk about that. This, the weapon, because you were quoted in the USA uh, Today article with regards to, um, Glantz et al.'s work here, and their, quote, their analysis was an indefensible breach of any reasonable standard for research on association or causation, close quote. And, and that's pretty strong. Well, 
anyone can understand that a cause has to precede the disease. And in this case, uh, Dharma Bata and Stanton Glantz did an analysis and they made the opposite claim. And this is indefensible and inexcusable. And, uh, so, and we also have evidence within the study itself that the authors knew that they had done this. They actually mentioned the ages at first heart attack and ages at first e-cig use. So they knew about these, this information, but they refused to use it. How, how do you explain that? I mean, it, I mean, that seems, I, I, that seems willful. I don't have an explanation. You would have to ask the authors. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't want to speculate why they did that. So this, this USA Today article, so uh, it was June of 2019 when- uh, uh, July. July, okay. well, the was article. the article. I think the paper came out in June, right? Correct. Right. Correct. So the research comes out in June. In July already, you're right there. USA Today, you know, surprisingly, it's a fantastic piece, actually. Really kind of got into it and described also the uh, uh, continental divide is the term I use to describe what's happened with inside public health and public health research. Um, but then after that, uh, it kind of died. Like even, even then, in July, you know, USA Today is talking about the story, you know, basically, you know, um, Glantz insists vaping leads to heart attacks, even if he first called his secondary analysis that included the timing of heart attacks, quote, not statistically significant, unquote. He now says it is simply, quote, underpowered, close quote, due to the small number of cases. It was his second study in 10 months to focus on heart attacks and vaping using battery-powered devices to heat liquid-based nicotine and inhalable vapor. So, I mean, that, you know, in my four and a half years now of covering um, this issue and coming across Dr. Glantz's research all the time, you know, he, he throws a lot of layers and loops and gets out of jail free cards uh, in, in his actual research, does he not? Well, a lot of research is complicated and we have to, and it's debatable. There's no question about that. Which techniques you use, the results you get, how you interpret them. There's legitimate discussion and debate about lots of facets of research. However, there is no legitimate debate about this study. And that's why we took action and we pursued retraction in the journal. Yeah, and um, you had some support from some key people within inside the industry as that kind of built up. And Friends of Actual RegWatch, you know, we find that we've been very happy with um, the NYU College of uh, Global Public Health. They really are just running with this thing. And uh, they came to the table with a letter in support that was just recently um, to nudge things along. That's correct. We had a consensus building slowly that this research failed uh, across all of the aspects that I, that I mentioned earlier. And there was a consensus building that this article had to be retracted. And I'm real pleased that the editors of the journal finally decided to pull the, the paper. Right, and I've just got the letter up here right now. Why don't you just uh, spend a, you know, 30 seconds here and talk a little bit about what uh, Dr. Abrams and the rest here uh, were getting across to the journal. 
Well, they basically fundamentally agreed with our analysis and um, and asked the editors to take some action about uh, this uh, travesty. And uh, it was a really supportive letter. The concepts here, the, the false findings are very easy to understand. And there's no question that it was that about it being interpretation or some sort of um, uh, opinion about these results. Yeah, and uh, just finally on the letter here, I just wanna make sure we scroll through so viewers can see the fine researchers here that you know signed their name to this request. Some are Canadian too as well. Um, there's David Sweener and some for the UK, and of course, uh, Dr. Farsolino. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a worldwide effort. This, this is the side of, uh, of tobacco harm reduction research with people who have common sense still on their mind. Absolutely. And, it, and it's, and it's the, um, it, it's the, it's success of the scientific method. You know, the reason we question this is that we had the data We've published research on e-cigarettes from this data. We know it very well, and we recognize that it was that these findings were false. And so that's the goal of good science. It's self-correcting, and it, it, we, we, that this is how science works. And we're real pleased that the editors finally recognized this. How would you characterize um, the response, though? Because there has uh, been discussion that the uh, that uh, Professor Glantz has just come up with some kind of an excuse with regard to the data, and that uh, the journal is just kind of letting them skate by. You know, um, what's interesting is that um, I use uh, a, a piece of software called Zotero, which I'm sure should be familiar to a lot of people in academic research. If I'm right or wrong, Are, is it a tool you're familiar with? No. Oh, okay. So it's a research tool, you know, for, you know, academic research kind of stuff and, and your citations and bibliographies and everything else. And so, but it doesn't happen often. This is the, really only the second or maybe third time ever. And I've got thousands of, you know, research documents that are in here. But sure enough, an item in your database, uh, let me just see here, an item in your database has been retracted. Yeah. So view item. And so sure enough, you can follow along to the item. And then there it is, is uh, concerns about um, electronic uh, cigarette use and myocardial infraction among adults in the U.S. population, Dr. Glantz. So, you know, I was wondering uh, whether or not if the retraction was going to hit my Zotero, because it's not really quite official until, you, until that happens. This is a uh, uh, service that's put on by an organization called Retraction Watch that exists to actually follow when retractions happen and then do what it can to make sure they get out there because that's gotta be one of the hardest issues is that the damage is already done, right, Dr. Rodu? Well, that's correct. A lot of the damage was done, but you know, we, this is what, uh, this is the process. And so we're, we're really grateful that the editors made the right decision to finally get this paper. We would love to have seen more coverage of this in the um, media because a retraction is a big deal. There's no question that uh, the fear among almost every legitimate researcher 
is to have their paper retracted. And so this is not a trivial matter. This is a very big deal, uh, but it was justified in this case. Put it, put it plainly for our viewers, Dr. Rodu, who have probably likely seen one of the mainstream media stories over the last six months claiming that vaping causes heart attacks. This is during the national panic on vaping, national in both US and Canada, and then also around the world. I mean, we're talking devastation here. What can you say to people who might have seen those, those pieces? Well, we can only say that this study has been proven false. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's a reason to look at all of these studies in great detail. We've been doing this for the past 25 years. And uh, every study should withstand this kind of scrutiny. We publish our own papers with the idea that they need to withstand this scrutiny. And so I don't understand the, any anger or any frustration with this process. Yeah, well, you are, uh, you're a bigger man than I am. That's what I can say. Uh, let me just find this uh, clip here as I just continue along in my hopefully non-technical error uh, switching of a cast while also doing an interview. Um, okay, so I've got one more clip I want to play of um, Professor Glantz, and then we'll come back, have a little bit more conversation, and then I've got a good segue from that into <laughs> even more troubling conversations to have. Today is a couple of troubling conversation day. I should have maybe titled the piece that. So uh, just to set this up again, it's still from the same piece from two years ago um, when we were talking about uh, the uh, sexual harassment uh, charges made against Professor Glantz at the University of California, San Francisco, where he leads you know, a $20 million you know, funded effort to um, take down vaping, I think would be probably what the mandate is at this moment. But um, this is an appearance he made um, at the... Uh, San Francisco, I can't remember what the counselors, it's the, you know, it's their, it's their local civic group of crazies, of progressives, as they're making their decision to ban uh, flavors and e-juice. Now, this was the early kind of um, public hearing stuff, and then the actual full ban kicked in. They voted it, fully kicked in later. But I wanted to show this because it's Stanton Glantz in his own voice um, uh, presenting testimony um, in his hometown right, um, about banning flavors. And it just listen carefully at the very start to the sycophantic counselor and his question uh, to the good professor. So. June of last year was a busy time for Dr. Glantz. While fending off sexual harassment charges in the workplace, he was appearing before the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to June of last year was a busy time for Dr. Glantz. While fending off sexual harassment charges in the workplace, he was appearing before the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to deliver testimony which closed the deal on the ban for e-liquid flavors. I've been getting a lot of email, and, and personally I think this is a mess, but you're probably the leading tobacco researcher in the world. Uh, that's been put forward is that this will disproportionately hurt e-cigarettes, and e-cigarettes are a harm reduction strategy right. that helps people get off of tobacco. Now, I think, yeah. from my perspective, I think it does the opposite thing, but yeah. I'm not, I don't have the data or the expertise to affirmatively say that. 
Well, there's, that's an area where there's a lot of research accumulating. We published a paper about a year and a half ago that showed that smokers who use e-cigarettes are 30% less likely to quit smoking than smokers who don't use e-cigarettes. And so while it's true that some people have successfully quit with e-cigarettes, for most people they actually make it harder to quit. Moreover, while e-cigarettes deliver fewer cancer-causing chemicals than conventional cigarettes do, they deliver as much ultrafine particles and certain other toxins, and those ultrafine particles trigger inflammatory processes that lead to heart attacks, that lead to strokes, that lead to, to non-cancer lung disease. And uh, that's, uh, that is our good friend, uh, Dr. Glantz. Got you coming back here, Dr. Rodu. So when you listen to that, what's your reaction? Well, it's complete and utter denial about any benefits that e-cigarettes might have. And we've done studies that show these are e-cigarettes are not only the most popular cessation products, but they're also the most successful if they're compared to uh, nicotine replacement products and other medicines. So it's it's just incredible that that you you would could deny every possible benefit of e-cigarettes and emphasize the uh, only the risks it's just impossible and that's been over time it's not it's not like it's been changed it it was that position in the beginning and unchangeable well and you got to keep in mind brent that a lot of this is driven by a an enormous amount of federal funding from the NIH to the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, during the period when uh, uh, Bata and Glantz were working on this study, that is 2017 to 2019, Professor Glantz received over $13 million in direct costs for his research. Now, not all of that went to funding this study but it gives you an, an idea of the, the massive machine that investigators are using, funded by US tax dollars, to drive this uh, anti-e-cigarette campaign. Now, Dr. Rohde, one of the often uh, made criticisms of you and your work is the fact that funding has come from the tobacco industry in some manner for your work. What can you tell us about that? My research is funded by uh, non-specific grants from tobacco manufacturers to the University of Louisville. This funding mechanism has been at place at two universities since 1999. I receive a professor's salary and I'll retire on a professor's pension. I acknowledge my tobacco industry funding, uh, but what I wanna do is publish research that is that can't be challenged in the same way that uh, uh, that this study was challenged. So let me ask you this: Is is it so to play both sides of this for a second? If um, critics, if your critics uh, try to delegitimize your research and your you know criticism of of others' research because some money comes from that industry and goes to uh, the university you work for, how is it any different than uh, government funding? 
uh, going to uh, to Dr. Glantz to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. And it's not just that, but his entire um, persona, much like most progressives, their their politics and their persona and their sense of, of who they are is wrapped up in their political activism. So it seems to me that Dr. Glantz is an activist because that's how he really did start as an activist. And I bet you in his heart, he will say he's an activist. And so he's an activist researcher conducting activist science um, that's funded to, in the tens of millions by the U.S. federal government. So that's got to have just as much of a bias effect or at least a, you know, some kind of an effect on the research. You know, NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., are the dominant source for all research conducted at universities and colleges across the nation. Now, you have to make a connection, though, because the federal government in the U.S. is, is intent on creating what they call a tobacco-free world. And so the NIH is simply the funding arm of that strategy. And so grant uh, supporters or the, the uh, academicians at universities submit grants with that type of thing in mind. And so I believe there is inherent bias introduced by that funding. Right, because there's a strategy. So that, that's, that's the cloud there that you can get behind, you know, get around it is because, well, our government strategy is to promote this particularly really good public health thing. And that's, you know, zero tobacco use. That's our yeah. strategy. But then all research then has to come up and, and work towards that effort and that goal. So that doesn't make it good research. It just makes it party line research. Correct. I, I call it totalitarian it. science, but... <laughs> But I that's couldn't just, possibly comment, Brad. Yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to make sure everybody hears that. Totalitarian science. It just sounds perfect. It just really, really describes it. Okay, so uh, let's, let's kind of wrap this up. There, There is another question I'd like to ask with regard to this glance thing. Now, it's a bit in the weeds, but it lifts up really quick. And that's this issue that, well, let me ask you the question instead. Is it not typical that good science needs to be replicable, like other scientists need to be able to try to replicate your findings. And so is this study something that has been set up to do that? Or is this whole data issue makes that completely moot? And I find that pretty convenient, if that's the case. No, uh, his science can be replicated. This study can be completely replicated. And uh, that's, the int that's the goal of all science full replication. You know, if a laboratory has a technique and they're trying to promote it, other laboratories have to be able to reproduce the technique and get the same results. If they can't, the technique goes nowhere. And that's the same thing for this kind of science. It has to be reproducible. It has to be replicated by other uh, investigators and it has to stand up to scrutiny. So in the larger issue around um, this suspect science is the way that we like to frame it at RegWatch, because at least we're not calling it junk science, it's suspect. <laughs> we'll leave it up. It's, you know, some of it is junk, there's no doubt. Um, 
So the big concern is that it seems that everywhere around this issue, truth and science are no longer together. Like when we first started covering this topic, we heard a lot from regulators in Canada, at Health Canada all the time, evidence-based, we're evidence-based, we're evidence-based. Heard that in the US at FDA, evidence-based, evidence-based. We do not hear evidence-based anymore. In the last year or two, those, those words have not come out of any regulator's mouth with regard to vaping. So do they just kind of wake up and realize they, they can't even lie with that anymore? Like they're not even promising evidence-based. Well, we're gonna continue to be evidence-based. And um, that, that's, that's just the way it has to be. And as regulators make decisions, if they make decisions based on bad science or distorted science or exaggerated science, they'll be held accountable for that. And that's the key thing that vapors are interested in knowing is how will they know that it's bad science? Well, it, it takes reproducibility. It takes people like me and the 16 signatories to that other letter to uh, constantly question, constantly try to replicate those results. It's a long process. And as Ivan Aransky said in a recent uh, media interview, uh, this process went relatively fast to get this retraction. A lot of times it takes a lot longer. So there's some good news there for sure. And, and, and Professor Glantz is kicking up a fuss on his blog. So we, you know that it's, it's, it's tweaked him a little bit somewhere. There's no doubt. So let's, let's switch now. The last time we had you on, we were discussing the epidemic of teen vaping. Um, and it was around this time, actually last year. And that had started in September of 2018 with then Commissioner uh, Scott Gottlieb saying that there was an epidemic of teen vaping and that it posed a clear and present danger to uh, young people in the United States. And they will not tolerate another generation of youth being addicted to nicotine. So I made the point then, I've been making it almost every time I've been on the air, I'm still making it, is that these are the terms that public health uses, FDA and CDC use, in order to quarantine people, take their civil liberties away. And then, so here we are with COVID, uh, nice hip name with their E-Valley, uh, and uh, here we are in the middle of a full-fledged worldwide epidemic where the CDC you know, spokespeople, top spokespeople yesterday, literally saying, get ready for your lives, Americans, to be fully disrupted. Not going into work, not going into school. This is serious. I mean, I'm just amazed that, we aren't, that they've got the, the cojones to, to talk like an ep epidemic in this way. When they've just spent a year and a half talking about sucking uh, vaping as an epidemic. I just don't get it. Well, I agree with you, Brent. Uh, you know, the 2018 epidemic was based on 3.1 million high school kids who had used a vaping product in the past 30 days before the survey. And I blogged on this issue many times, but I showed that 600,000 of those kids were actually uh, legal tobacco purchasers in 2018. And so they were the conduit for the rest of the underage purchasers. Uh, that, and that was number one. Number two, of the 2.5 million um, uh, underage high school kids, 1.7 million of them had used 
other tobacco products or were currently using them. In other words, this was not a brand new epidemic as it was portrayed by federal officials and other uh, campaigners. This was an epidemic, so to speak, that was, uh, that was overlaid on other tobacco use. And then finally, of those underage kids that hadn't used any tobacco product, and there were a small number, most of them had used the products infrequently. And when I say infrequently, it was anywhere from one to 20 days, one to 19 days in the past month. There were only 95,000 users of that 3.1 million who had used the products 20 to 30 days. Yes, we are, we are concerned about nicotine addiction, in the, especially in those kids. So but then you also have to keep in mind, excuse me, you also have to keep in mind that this epidemic was being uh, portrayed as a crisis, a public health crisis, and they were ignoring far higher rates of high school kids using marijuana, using alcohol, and getting drunk. And, and so I, I just was stunned that a nicotine, nicotine use, which is in, no, in many ways no more dangerous than caffeine use, okay? And we don't, no one seems to be concerned about Starbucks addictions among our high school kids. Uh, it, it was being portrayed as this public health crisis. And um, I, I think there was a, there's a lot of evidence to show that the, the, these, uh, the, the, it was a fake epidemic in many respects. Yeah, I would, uh, I mean, I certainly concur. A fake epidemic is certain. And then that fake epidemic rolled right up into a lethal vaping lung disease. Well, and, and Brent, the 2018 uh, survey, National Youth Tobacco Survey, actually showed that the more you used vapor products among these users now, the more that the vapor products were used, the higher the percentage of kids who were vaping marijuana. Now, they didn't distinguish between marijuana and nicotine vaping, so it's, it's not clear, but there's no question that a lot of these kids were vaping marijuana, and that leads into this whole issue of these lung diseases and lung injuries from these black market uh, vaping products. Yeah, and I mean, what did you, in terms of E-Valley, uh, just the way that it was framed and stuff like that, and how long it took the CDC to come clean on the matter, it really was 2020 before they came kicking and screaming. In fact, they probably knew about coronavirus and, and then they finally came clean. This is probably after they knew about coronavirus is, is my tinfoil hat thing here. Well, there's no question that it took the CDC a long time to provide not only uh, uh, high school vapors of nicotine, but also high school marijuana vapors. You know, both groups had to be given the right information or they were going to get hurt. And many 
did across the country. Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt. And then let's remember too, just the impact on the vaping industry has been, you know, devastating. Yeah. And I, I just can't imagine that they weren't looking for a pretext in which to do this. Well, I can't comment on the vaping industry, but what I can comment about are the 480,000 smokers that are going to die this year unless we get them to switch to safer products or quit altogether. That's where I think that, you know, we never, when, with all of these vaping injuries and deaths, you never had that contrasted with the number of, of uh, smokers who were dying each and every day, and that's about 1,300. Right, and that fantastic, uh, you are a great producer, my friend. You were segued right into the next thing, so let me tee this up in, in the right manner. I brought this up. This all comes from the CDC and the vaping-related lung illness. So when that came out in August of last year, so when it hit national news, that very moment that I saw in print on CBS News's you know, morning show uh, for the write-up in vaping-related lung illness. And then I'd seen vaping-related lung disease, too, in a few places. And this is like with the rollout, the CDC's public health campaign rollout on it. And I immediately just went, I mean, well, this is just lying. It's lying. It's just, it's total. I mean, there's words to be used for in which how, you know, people who are ideologically minded uh, manipulate language and use it to control populations. At, see, we're dealing with the people who work in policy where they deal on the population level. Love to say that all the time. That's what epidemiology is, population level. So everything about public health is the population level. And especially if you want to brainwash people or lie to them or get them to think something, you have to do it on the population level. So kind of propaganda is baked right into the cake with public health because you need to convince people in a short amount of time to change behaviors and you have to do that you know, through convincing. And so that means generally propagandist messaging. And so when I saw vaping-related lung illness, I went, God, that sounds a lot like smoking-related disease. And over the years, discussions that I've had with people about that, well, what are the smoking-related diseases? Well, it's everything that people die from that we can attach to smoking if they happen to be a smoker. So, you know, you're 80 and you die from something and you're a smoker and the thing, and it was pneumonia, we can call it a smoking-related disease or something else. I mean, crazy. So there's not, it's only really cancer that you can actually maybe draw a direct connection to smoking. And even then with lung cancer, there's been recent research that's pulled some of that back. So I've got, have they been lying to us all the whole way along? They first had cooked up the numbers for smoking deaths in order to gain control of the public, a huge corporations to tax the tobacco companies. I mean, this is about growing government. Don't anybody ever think that getting a, a, hand, a handle on the tobacco industry wasn't about growing government, and it certainly did. And so now this whole infrastructure is here and it's what we're facing. So let me throw that at you. The smoking-related deaths, I've got no faith in that number anymore. Well, can I give you some background about smoking, what we call attributable deaths? Um, so everybody thinks that the CDC and other federal agencies are going around counting dead smokers. And it's really not the case at all. In fact, the
the CDC estimates of smoking-related deaths are based on models. And let me give you a brief explanation of how these models work. First of all, they, they rely on observation among a million people, okay? This was done by the American Cancer Society back in the 1980s. They followed a group of a million people for six years, and they observed who died, when they died, and what they died of. And so the American Cancer Society scientists were able to determine what the rate of dying was based on uh, whether or not you used a tobacco product, mainly cigarettes. And they could compare never tobacco users with current smokers, former smokers, and they also did it with smokeless tobacco users. They had this information and they followed these people to determine death rates. And when you compare the death rates of never smokers and smokers, you see that the smoking rates are elevated. And so you can take those findings and you can apply them back to the population estimates of smoking. And that's how, that's how the CDC comes up with the number of deaths attributable to smoking. Dr. Rodu, why did you, why did you characterize uh, this as the big kill in this article? And this is from a 2008 article of yours that uh, we're talking about here. Well, we used a term that was uh, used in an earlier regulation article that talked about smoking attributable deaths. And um, we, we, you know, we had the same questions you did, Brent, back in 2007 and eight, when we were conducting this research. We thought, you know, how can it be that smoking is declining and deaths have not declined along with them? Now, one thing you have to keep in mind about that though, is that let, let's that the the, the um, number of deaths attributable to smoking are based on the the number of people smoking, and the so what happens is let's take 1990 for example. In 1990, the CDC told us there were 46 million current smokers. Okay. And by 2018, that number had dropped to 34 million smokers. So you might say, okay, that means that smoking-related deaths are down. But the other part of the equation is former smokers. Former smokers are also at risk for all the same diseases, and it all depends on how long they smoked and how much they smoked. But when you quit smoking, you don't drop the risk to zero immediately. You have to account for smoking-related diseases in former smokers. Now, in 1990, we had 44 million former smokers, according to the CDC. By 2018, that had increased to 55 million. So that's one reason why the numbers 
may not have fallen as much as we would have liked because we have a lot more former smokers and they do contribute to the number of deaths. So let me ask you this, why, what kind of impact does it have to have things that are skewed here a little bit? Like, so if today, currently right now, CDC were to come out and say, you know, there's 480,000 Americans are gonna die this year from smoking related uh, disease, um, which has been the number for the last decade and a bit, two decades. So if that continues along, well, what does it mean then if, if they're giving us that number, but it doesn't really jive with actually probably the real mortality of smoking? What's wrong with well, that? Well, keep in mind that uh, in 1990, we had maybe 250 million uh, people in the country. Now we have 300 million. That's why the rate of smoking has declined considerably. But the number of smokers and former smokers keeps the deaths at a relatively high rate. Now, we've it's impossible to sort through the CDC process. Okay, and let me give you a couple examples. As I said, they rely on the rates of death, the death rates among never smokers, current smokers, and former smokers from a 1982 to 1988 American Cancer Society study, okay? The American Cancer Society has never released that data to anyone, including the CDC. It's never been checked by anyone else. I know because for five years, I tried to get that data and the American Cancer Society wouldn't give it to me. Now, again, we're talking about open data, replicable results. No one has replicated the American Cancer Society's uh, numbers because and, you can't get to the data. And that data is, has, is still driving the estimates. Yes, for the most part. Now, they've made adjustments. The CDC has made adjustments. But to be honest, I'm not clear exactly what those adjustments have been. So now there's, there's, no, there's uh, no so there's no transparency to, then to this to at all ever when it comes to this this number. No, I, and first I tried to get the data from the CDC. They're the ones putting out the estimates, so I figured they're the ones that could give me access to the data as a taxpayer. CDC said we've never seen that data, never seen it, and so it's back to the American Cancer Society, and they simply wouldn't release it. Now, so for, forget about forget about third party funding affecting research. We're just going to have third parties conduct the research and not even give the data to the government, and the government regulator will go out and make hay with it. Because make no mistake, that the there's this is the avenue I'm going down here is that that number has been fundamentally uh, uh, important to the whole stop smoking effort, to the whole removing your liberty effort. I'm going to defend smokers here for a second. They're the ones that originally got screwed. I remember when I was a smoker and got screwed as a human, as an individual, right? So my own liberties, right? And that's what drives so many vapors mad is because they followed the plan and then now they're doing it to them for vaping, right? They've already, they already had the, the demonization. Uh, they already had all the pressure and bullying and then they already quit smoking through vaping and they thought that was the, you know, the tool for them. Anyhow, let me just get back to that. The fact of the matter is, is that that death's number has been critical to this whole power grab. Oh. Oh. It's driven all regulation 
of tobacco, not only in the U.S., but across the world. And this number's never been independently validated and verified. And, I, you know, that's why we undertook that study that you were showing, uh, and we published our work in Nicotine Tobacco Research, a legitimate and excellent journal. And then I wrote that piece for regulation for the Cato Institute in order to try to bring some education to people regarding how these estimates are made and and how the process is a black box, essentially. I did not expect to be shocked uh, to the extent that I am from this interview that, I mean, so the American Cancer Society is is behind that entire and, effort. And I've, I've got all the documentation, all the letters I sent, all the letters I exchanged with the president of the American Cancer Society, the my FOIA request to CDC, uh, all of that stock, I have that in documentation. I've blogged about it. And, uh, you know, I, I hope in this forum with the popularity of your program that we can get other people talking about it because it's it's vitally important. And it's, it's, it's one of those things, even a lot of tobacco researchers don't have a good appreciation of how this uh, has evolved over the past 20 or 30 years. Yeah, the forecast for smoking deaths is corrupted. Yeah. It's, not, well, it's not even real. Because- You know, we believe, and in fact, I can tell you, some FDA researchers have recently published some studies that suggest a slight reduction in uh, smoking-related uh, or smoking-attributable deaths. So they've started to move a little bit, but I believe there's a bias against admitting that the death rates and the deaths are coming down. And that's, that leads me to another aspect of this that I think is really important, Brad. You know, my, uh, my colleague, Philip Cole, he's an eminent epidemiologist who's now retired from UAB, the University of Alabama in Birmingham. We developed this concept about lung cancer. It is the sentinel disease of smoking. In other words, you can track the rates of smoking in any country, in any jurisdiction, by their lung cancer rates, uh, essentially removed 15 or 20 years, but you can still track progress using lung cancer because lung cancer uh, is driven by cigarette smoking almost entirely. Now, my colleague, Phil Cole, discovered that cancer mortality in the United States was peaking in 1990 and in fact started a long-term decline in 1991. He was the only epidemiologist in the country that recognized this. And I had the great fortune of working with him on a landmark paper published in the American Cancer Society journal, Cancer, in 1996. We found, and, and it was Phil Cole's discovery, that the cancer mortality decline was driven largely 
by a lung cancer decline. So by 1991, lung cancer was on the way down in the U.S. and has continued to plummet. And we know that this is contributing in a major way to all of cancer mortality. And we know that the, all of the efforts to reduce smoking is, is working. They all, all of those efforts are working. And, so me... you know, that paper was largely ignored. And, you know, Phil Cole made a, made a, made a prediction when we published that paper. He said for the foreseeable future, this is likely to continue as we make progress against smoking. And in fact, it has. It continues until this day. The latest data out of the uh, National uh, Center for Health Statistics shows that cancer mortality and lung cancer continue to decline. So let me uh, pull this back up into what we see as the real problem here. And that is trying to explain why it is that the two main arguments that tobacco harm reduction has in its toolkit, vaping, tobacco harm reduction, the whole bit, the two main arguments that they are the nuclear weapons of tobacco harm reduction, and that is one, so with regard to vaping, vaping saves lives. That's the message, vaping saves lives. And then public health turns around and says, we don't care. That, that literally has been, we don't care, the shrug. We're, no, we're gonna tell people it kills. We, we care so little about your vaping saves lives message. We're gonna turn it into vaping kills. And we're going to shove that down the throat of hundreds of millions of people and see how you like that. That's what public health has been doing. And why is that? And so when I ask myself, well, that's because maybe they know that there's not all that many people dying anymore because of it. Right. Well, like, so in their head, they know that. That's exactly right. I mean, this kind of public health strategy has no regard for smokers and no regard for smokers dying. It's, it's, it's transitioned into an anti-industry um, uh, war, and it's absolutely hurting public health because it's not recognizing these deaths, and it's not giving people the uh, options to switch to vastly safer products and quit inhaling smoke. Right. And then let's talk about the, uh, the other aspect, the quiver, if you will, in the tobacco control message, when the vaping saves lives doesn't work, right? Then you go to your next one and that's like, well, look, you know, vaping uh, will, you know, cut the cost of the healthcare system. If you take a smoker, you know, who's maybe 45 and you switch him over to vaping and he, and he gets on vaping, you will save money. And oh, look, that's why the UK is doing it. They've got socialized medicine, they're smart, they're doing it. I mean, this is core argument for tobacco harm, harm reduction. I think it's opposite. I know for a fact that for government, the earlier a citizen dies, the more money government saves. It's a rule. If, the, if you live longer and you're still a smoker, you know, or if you, if you live longer as a non-smoker, former smoker, and live longer, you're going to cost the government more money. And I know there's been studies done by that in the 1990s and elsewhere. I'm sure you're familiar with that. When you, when you patch up how much money a smoker's paying in taxes that are extra than an average citizen and put that against what if he quit smoking and what his uh, cost to the government would be if they lived to 85. The live to 85 guy costs the government more money. It's just as simple as that. 
I understand the economics, but I'm a health professional, so I'm out to help people to live longer and healthier lives. Uh, but, you know, keep in mind this whole war against vaping. It's, it's a repeat of the same war that we've seen against other smoke-free products like smokeless tobacco. The, the, it, was the, it was the exaggeration and total distortion of smokeless tobacco as a death sentence for mouth cancer. We now know that is not correct at all. In fact, a government study in 2016 uh, basically found that American men who dip or chew tobacco have no excess risk for mouth cancer at all, period. That's a myth that was promulgated and extended for decades, and people still believe it. So we've seen it with smokeless tobacco. Right now, we're seeing it with cigars. There are studies out now that seem to indicate that cigar smokers, even one or two a day, have the same risks as cigarette smokers. And now we're seeing it in a big way with, um, with vaping products. You know, I want to go back. I've, I, I blogged on the amount of money transferred to UCSF for S Professor Glantz's research. And I, yes, you've brought up the exact chart because look what happened. This, is, this was Professor Glantz's funding. It expanded incredibly in 2013. Now take this and multiply it by 10 by thousands of researchers across the country. That's the time when NIH funding aimed at, especially aimed at vaping, started to, um, started really to balloon. And now we're seeing all of the, all of the products of that research funding in all of the, um, all of the, you know, if it's if it's bad about vaping, it gets published. Period. Right. In 2016, when we first had you on the show, I met with you down in Miami uh, at the SFADA annual conference, and we did release a piece, a, a short part of the interview. But I mean, basically, was you warned us, and you said, if you think there's been bad research out there, you know, yeah. now there is a mountain of it coming yeah. down our way. And sure enough, it's true. Exactly. And it's all, it's all driven by this massive amount of funding. You know, when the FDA transfers $260 million to NIH every year, and that then is distributed across the uh, tobacco researchers all through the country, that, that's, that's, that's a huge force for um, research. Yeah, certainly, too, because it's all from a strategy, there's a strategy again, as we said, right? You know, zero tobacco use. That's the sun, yes. that's the sunshine utopia of, yep. of this particular uh, progressive initiative. And, you know, it skews the research. It completely does. Absolutely. Now, um, let's not talk about climate change, though, you know, I just want to so much right now because that's what happened there first, right? But you know, ends justify the means. Uh, and, um, you know, if the outcome is worthy, then, you know, bending a little bit of truth uh, is okay. So let's ask, talk about another piece of truth. 
that um, is the truth that secondhand smoke kills. Secondhand smoke is so dangerous, right? That 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 was actually the the tool that used to actually remove a smoker's civil liberties inside somebody else's private property, right? <laughs> so well, well, to comment on that, in two thousand four, Professor Glantz published a paper in the British Medical Journal that made the claim that a smoking ban initiated in Helena, Montana, in a small town, uh, resulted in an almost immediate decrease in heart attacks and heart attack admissions in the local hospitals. Um, we found that in, uh, to be a, an, a pretty incredible claim, and we had access to heart attack deaths in that county during the years when the ban wasn't in place and then when it was. And we found that heart attack deaths actually were so small that there was a tremendous amount of random variation. Basically, they would go up, they would come down, up and down various, uh, during various years. And we suggested to the British Medical Journal in a, in a comment that, that, that random variation could be a, uh, a, a player here. And so, and later on, uh, we actually published a research study where we did the same thing, heart attack deaths, in states that had imposed bans versus states who had, no, who had not imposed bans. And we found that it made very little difference. And so, you know, again, we're challenged by research that either strikes us as not making sense or it needs validated and verified. And had we found that, Brent, we would have we would have uh, published uh, confirmatory findings. We we approach these things not with not with any uh, uh, preconception, but with the idea of trying to validate. So let's just uh, kind of recap here then for a second. So the smoking uh, forecasted deaths each year that we've been hearing for decades. That and it's been regulators that have been providing us that that number, and it's been a scare number. It's driven regulations, laws, everything, all the whole, you know, billions of dollars in funding, this and that. So, the smoking-related deaths forecast is based on a number that the government doesn't even have the data access to the data. Well, they they do have access to some of the data. For example, they have a, they have estimates of how many smokers there are in any given year. Now- Okay, 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 practice. you're missing, I, I'm gonna do okay. my, so for my viewers out there right now, this is the part where I'm breaking new ground where uh, a seasoned 30 year interviewer uh, who needs to, to break the live wall here for a second and talk to my interview subject, all my interview subjects need to hear this. You're used to this for my regular interviews, right? Cause like I'll go, okay, Brad, I, we, I gotta get you to restart that, right? Cause we're, we're trying to do the top line thing here for a soundbite that we're trying to get. Um, and I wanna make sure we're just pulling it up. So here, here we, to the viewer out there, they've heard this today. They've heard the smoking related deaths 
that number can't count on it. The, it's, the data comes from American Cancer Society. They don't even share with the government. Government even hasn't even asked for it, and they continue along in the same way. We find out that you know major researcher that's getting tens of millions of dollars in who um, is leading the effort against vaping just had a major paper retracted. He's got a slew of, of sloppy research out there. There's no doubt going all the way back to 2003 and four, being the lead re, you know being the lead researcher with the others that basically came out with the secondhand smoking evidence. And it again, when you look at the two, when you look at the two, you see small sample size, uh, disregarding common sense when it comes to you know uh, the impacts of smoking and not smoking on 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 certain things. So I mean, it's just a regular researcher could see that there's some very pro big problems. So the entire secondhand smoking argument is tainted. So the number of deaths are tainted. Secondhand smoking deaths are tainted. What, what is about any of this argument that's come from public health that still stands? It, it just seems to me that it's all been lies. Well, as I said, we, I've spent a lot of my career challenging what everybody thinks they know about uh, tobacco use, especially smoking and smokeless tobacco use. I, I think it's healthy to question these basic findings. We've actually even challenged the, 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 what is the smoking rate? The National Health Interview Survey is used by the CDC to give us the number of smokers and the smoking rate in the US every year. But there are other federal surveys that can give different rates and different numbers. And we've actually done the comparison. So again, what we've done, Brent, throughout this 25-year career is, is uh, ask legitimate questions and publish legitimate research. Okay. Have they been lying? Has public health been lying? No, I, I, no, I won't go that far. I think that we have to uh, question many of the assumptions that we've all believed. Uh, but I, no, I can't, I can't uh, attribute that kind of uh, actions to them. So let me frame it this way then. Let's just make the supposition that there's been less than truth across all of the arguments. And would that then not explain why uh, the vaping tobacco harm reduction argument might not be getting any kind of real, you know, runway here. It's because it's all predicated on all of these other things that that have always we've always been told. You know, secondhand smoke. You know, smoking deaths, the number of smokers, the cost of the healthcare system. All of that, all those things. If all of those numbers are actually not true, and they're part of a insidious or ideologically bent kind of a thing that's going on, well, it's no wonder then that vaping has not been able to amount uh, uh, any kind of real effort. To, to cut cut through it because they've predicated everything on this misinformation. Clearly, anti-tobacco activists, uh, you could call them extremists, have had the dominant message that every American has been hearing. And everything from the teen epidemic, uh, there's no question that smoking kills. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's no doubt that smoking leads to higher mortality from a vast array of diseases. 
but the the not the actual numbers uh i think there's some questions about how those numbers are are calculated so across a lot of uh, uh areas uh we definitely have had questions and um would love to get more discussion about the answers well, then, and just last question then for you, Dr. Rodu. I mean, what's next for you? Well, for one, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to do our own research to the highest, to the best quality that we can. And we'll also to continue to question other uh, conclusions and other research findings that don't make sense. Well, there you go. Well, and that's all that uh, anybody could ask for. And I just one last uh, thank you from all of our viewers and the researchers out there that know that you need a big pat on the back, my friend. Thank you. You bet. So just hang tight right there and I'll just do a quick close. And I just want to thank everybody for joining us again on RegWatch. And that has been our show for today. So please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. Dig into your wallet, find a few dollars, kick them over to us. We could use it, help pay for all of our new gear, which we're still learning, but it's, uh, you know, it's pretty sweet. And uh, while you're online, please like us on Facebook and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.